just when I figured you'd reached your lowest point, you're listening to the Rish Outcast. Kind of makes me feel better about having done Highlander too. Everybody loves to loop us. Everybody wants some now. If you've got need for chalupas, I'm the one to show you how. Chalupas, chalupas for you. Chalupas, chalupas or two or three or four. I could get you some more chalupas now. Hey guys, this is Rish Outfield, and this is the Rish Outcast. And I don't know what I'm doing. The other day I recorded a story called Father's Day in August that I wrote in 2005 because I saw on the calendar that, you know, it's, it's getting closer to Father's Day. Uh, maybe I'll run that story. I sat down and I recorded it and I, I realized while I was recording it that it might seem odd standing by itself. It's a, it's a story that I wrote about the small town carnival that they'd have every year at the end of summer. Uh, not in my hometown, my hometown was too small, but in the town where the high school was, where the grocery store was, where the movie theater was. And I've written many stories about that town. Uh, I call it Praisden in my stories and in the year 2000, I wrote a story that takes place there called Try Your Luck. And it was about the carnival, like I said, at the end of summer. Uh, I decided it would be the pickle days, the celebration, you know. And the carnival is just a small part of that celebration. It's a story, like I said, called Try Your Luck. And I don't know if I'll run it on the show or not. I, I'm kind of tempted to. I wrote that story and I wrote another story in 2000 about the carnival. And then a few years later, I wrote the third one, the Father's Day in August. And just for something to do, a couple days after I recorded Father's Day in August, I sat down and I recorded the second of the three stories that I wrote about that carnival. And that one was called Round and Round. And I figured that would be the story that I'm presenting to you today on the Rish Outcast. It's the middle of the three stories. And if people like this one, then maybe I'll run Father's Day in August. And if people like that one, then I'll run Try Your Luck. It was an interesting experiment, something that I had never done, writing stories that take place in the same place at the same time. And... This one and Try Your Luck, but especially this one, are really, really nostalgic stories looking back at when I was a teenager. They all take place in two, no, 1992. I'll talk to you a little bit more about 1992 after the story, but I don't know, that was kind of a magical year for me. 1991, 92 are like the twilight zone between childhood and adulthood where there was a, you know, it was a gray area. That's really why I chose to set these stories here. Try Your Luck isn't based on anything that ever happened to me. It was just a fun little horror story that I wrote set there in that location. And it wasn't really the story that I wanted to tell. I wanted to tell about what it was like to be a teenager and... I don't know, the magic that was in the air at those carnivals, uh, especially the 1992 one. And so this is that one, the, the best of the three stories. And in recording it, it was still a little, uh, you know, there were some areas where I felt like I could improve. I've grown as a writer a little bit since I wrote it, but I really didn't change anything. I, I changed one word which was a word that was acceptable when I wrote it and is not acceptable now, and so I switched it out. I didn't know what to do on that. I, I made a judgment call. Maybe we'll talk about it later. 
but I don't think so. It's just, here's my story. Hopefully it speaks for itself and that you enjoy it. Uh, and I'll talk to you on the other side. Round and Round by Rich Outfield. Up and down the zipper went, and around and around. The afternoon breeze blew hard against us, blowing Andy's hair back and into her face. Among the spinning smells of popcorn and cigarettes, I could smell her hair, sweet and clean and somehow alive. Contagious hair. It made me feel alive, too. The carnival ride was a squat rectangle with two-person cabs all around it. Right now, it was slowly rising up and down and turning counterclockwise just fast enough to send every rider's stomach into orbit. It was great. And I was happy. Every year in praised in Utah, the last week of August was known as Pickle Days. Don't get smart now. I'm sure even the originators knew how silly that sounded. But as it was a traditional end-of-summer thing, with a parade, fireworks, and a carnival, we never thought much about it, just welcomed pickle days into our hearts and calendars. This was the first year I had attended the annual carnival without my family or best pal Baron. No, I had upgraded those tired relationships to an honest-to-goodness romance. Andy Chatwin was a grade younger than me, half a foot shorter, and cute as a button. If said button had long, curly brown hair and an ever-smiling face, like one of the less creepy Catholic saints. Whoosh! The zipper dropped, and Andy gasped happily. She leaned close to me and whispered something, then laughed. It sounded like, sex is what I like, which couldn't be right. Andy was my first girlfriend, and had told me I was her first boyfriend, and we hadn't gone that far. The zipper shuddered to a halt, our cab pausing near the top. What? I said to her, taking hold of her little hand. Nothing, she said, looking out at the swaying carnival below us. I had to know. No, really. What did you say? She looked back at me and my heart tingled. What a pretty girl she was, all at once. I said, this is what I imagine sex feels like. The zipper whooshed again, bringing us all the way around and to the bottom. Now something else tingled. With a clang and a squeak, the skinny, tattooed ride operator opened up our little compartment. Enjoy it? he asked actually seeming interested. Heck yeah, I said, realizing I sounded like a 50s sitcom kid rather than a 16-year-old in 1992. Good, good, the man said proudly, as if he had built the zipper. He held out his hand for Andy and practically scooped her out of her seat. She was such a little thing. I saw the tattoo on his bare stomach, a naked woman in a pornographic position. There were a couple of sprawled words below her, but I couldn't make them out. Suddenly, I wanted Andy away from him, all to myself. Best ride here, he said to her. You ride all them rust traps if you want, but the zipper's king. Yeah, it's great, Andy said, noticing he hadn't let her go. Tell you what, you and Wally here come back through the line again? I'll give you a ride for free. Yeah, I'll bet he would. Thanks, I said, taking Andy's arm, again feeling like a fifties kid, maybe picking up my best gal after my soda-jerking shift was done. Uh, name's Jim, not Wally. See you around, Jim, the ride operator said, emphasizing my name like it was the dumbest one ever. Coming from him, Wally sounded better. Andy and I walked down the midway, close together, taking in the mostly unimpressive sights. All around us, kids laughed and cried. It seemed to me that they cried more than laughed, and teens ran wild. I recognized a couple of them, but nobody seemed to recognize me. Andy chuckled. 
Wally, she said scoldingly. I looked back. The zipper was starting to spin again. The operator stretched, his back arching as he looked up at new passengers. Another run on the best ride in town. What was that guy talking about? Poor man, she said, suddenly melancholy. The life of a carnival worker. Carney, I corrected. The era of political correctness was upon us. Well, it must be sad, lonely. I looked at her, prepared to say something derogatory. She was watching people around us, her eyes following a black kid with a balloon with the Batman symbol on it. Her mouth was turned down in a concerned frown. I had never met anybody who cared so much about other people. Except my grandma, that is. But that was a given. She had lived through the Depression, World War II, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and horrible 70s fashions. Seems like it might be fun, I suggested. Kind of romantic. I doubt it. Doing the same thing every day, moving through dozens of little towns, never settling down, seeing only strangers everywhere you go. She paused to watch a little kid try to knock over milk bottles with a dirty brown beanbag, only to swear unabashedly when he missed. Plus, she said, arching an eyebrow, it's got to be tough to buy your groceries with carnival tickets. I nodded, considering it. That was a joke, Andy said. I laughed, but it was too little, too late. Then Andy grinned, mischievously. Did you see his tattoos? One of them, I said. The one with the monkey, or the other one? The other one, I said. Someone brushed past me. It was a very fat woman dragging two dirty and equally fat children behind her. Quickly, I turned back to the much nicer side of my girlfriend. A monkey? Why would anyone get a tattoo of a defecating monkey? A good question. Why get a tattoo at all? I wondered. The 90s were still young. In a year or three, even the average nun would sport one or two. I don't know, Andy said. You were staring pretty hard at his belly. I was not, I protested. Probably too much. I, I didn't even read what it said. She looked at me, springing a test. Do you want to know? I did. Of course I did. It was like noticing a message longer than a sentence in a bathroom stall. Who wouldn't be tempted? And to tattoo a caption underneath a nasty work of art like that? Well, it just had to be good. Nah, I said, and I was pretty proud of myself. From tinny speakers around the Ferris wheel, I heard Tom Cochran explaining how life was a highway, and he planned to ride it all night long. Whatever that meant. We were stuck between rows of barkers and try-your-luck games, the rows close enough to each other that you couldn't escape them both. I glanced at a rack of cheap Metallica t-shirts, being shilled for three times their value, but the ring tosses and softball pitches didn't draw me in. Still, I wasn't entirely there for me, was I? And, do you want me to try and win you something? I asked quickly. I'm not all that athletically inclined but I could make an attempt. Nah, she said simply. It's all junk. I looked over the prizes at the next booth. It was all junk. But still. I'll bet I could win you a prize, though. I'll bet you could, she said. And I smiled. She pointed ahead at the shaved ice stand. Why not spend that money on something to drink? We walked over to the shaved ice age and waited in line. It was a warm day, and it looked good. The garish sign showed an overweight Eskimo and proclaimed it sold 101 flavors. Always indecisive, I was glad there was a line. Andy was a very empathetic girl, and she must have sensed my indecision. Why don't we choose a flavor for each other? That didn't make things easier for me. 
but I agreed and chose something called Blinding Berry Blast. At least it wouldn't be bland. Andy nodded and asked the girl at the stand if there was a pickle flavor. You know, in honor of pickle days? There wasn't, thank God. Neither was there a black licorice flavor. What I ended up with was sour banana, which tasted absolutely awful. But so awful, it was kind of good. Not to suffer alone, I demanded we try each other's flavors while we walked around. The look on her face when she tasted sour banana made it all worth it. We held hands and sipped our drinks, just looking at the attractions. Her fingers fit mine nicely, making me feel bigger than I was. At one booth, Chesney Hawk's nasty 90s anthem, I Am the One and Only, was playing. What an arrogant song, all about how the world revolved around him. We'd all laugh about it someday, reminding ourselves that it was also his one and only hit. Then a ghastly scream came from our right. Andy pulled her hand away from me like I was on fire. Both of us turned toward the scream. Another carnival attraction was set up there, a big, boxy, haunted house. The line leading into it was almost non-existent. The ticket-taker in front of it was a fat kid just a couple years older than us, looking several decades more bored. Dr. Spooky's House of Horrors, I read aloud. There was a very poorly painted mural of a barely clad woman being attacked by something that was either a tree or a headless man with four arms. She was screaming and flailing wildly, her eyes drawn to be huge, but still not her most prominent feature. Only a couple of years before, I wouldn't have been able to stifle my excitement at the sight uh, of the ride, not the oversized breasts, but this day I managed to hide it just fine. The scream came again, from a speaker right outside the ride's exit door. Andy made a contemplative sound. So I said, What do you think? Andy turned to face me. You don't want to go in there, do you? she asked, scoldingly. No, I lied, but not well. It looks stupid. Does it? she asked clearly seeing right through me. I tried to sound convincing. Yeah, I've been in these before. They're always rip-offs and never scary. But I didn't care. I wanted to go in there. I might not find it scary, but maybe it would work on Andy, and she'd cling to me. I could comfort her, protect her from the cardboard aliens and bedsheet ghouls. Besides, whatever less-than-terrifying stupidities awaited within— the path through them would surely be dark. And you know what? Andy said. I heard Dr. Spooky isn't a real doctor at all. He dropped out of medical school after only one semester. I considered asking if this was true. Then I laughed. I was starting to notice that my girl had enough sense of humor for the both of us. The ghastly scream came again, a recording that was probably old in Methuselah's day. "'Jimmy?' Andy asked, like I was a very little boy. "'Do you want to go in there?' I glanced over again. Two pre-adolescent boys had just joined the small line. They might make a lot of noise, a lot of cat calls and hollering, and get in the way of any action I might pursue in there. I told her I didn't want to go in. But it was hard. I weighed my alternatives— but it felt like I was giving in to pride and selfishness either way. In the end, I let it go. I don't know why. It's not like Dr. Spooky's is one of my life's great regrets. But I wonder sometimes what would have happened had we gone in there, or taken a second spin on the zipper, or just gone home instead. I guess part of life's great challenge is not to know. As we walked away, Andy said, You know, I heard a story once about one of these carnival spook alleys. I don't think you're supposed to call them spook alleys anymore, I cautioned her, only half serious. Fine, 
in one of these spook houses, then, she said instead, knowing full well what I intended. There was a garbage can beside us, and she looked from my drink to wit and back. I nodded, and we both tossed what remained of our shaved ices. Anyway, there was one of these that came to town, and it had all sorts of silly scares in it. Fake spiders, coffins, ghosts on wires, dinosaurs, and it had a— It had dinosaurs? I interrupted. I don't know. I wasn't there, she said, just a little irritated. Anyhow, it also had a hanging man in it. You know, a dummy with a noose around its neck that looked really good, really convincing and stuff. And when the summer ended, uh, this was one of those stationary carnivals, not like this one. And the carnival packed up to go. One of the roustabouts went in there to put everything away. What's a roustabout? I asked. Pretty sure I knew, but finding the word strange anyway. It's like a dinosaur, she joked. I think the polite term for carnies is roustabouts, okay? So this guy goes into the spook alley and notices the hanged man and thinks... I didn't remember this being here before. And when he lifts it up to take it down, a piece of it falls off, revealing maggots and rot. I smiled. Andy frowned at my reaction, then continued her tale. It was a real person, either a suicide or someone who was murdered and left hanging in the spook alley as part of the attraction. Hundreds of witnesses had seen the body over the summer, but they never reported it, or gave it a second thought. She was finished with the tale, and reached into her back pocket for a piece of gum. I liked the story, but I couldn't help myself. But didn't they notice the smell? And he paused in gum unwrapping. I never thought of that. I guess not. How true is this story, and? I asked, playing suspicious. "'Fine,' she said, getting petulant. "'Don't believe it. You'll be to blame if it happens again.' I didn't really know what she meant by that, so I took it as a joke. I've been guilty of saying things that make little or no sense, and it's usually when I'm trying to be funny. To be honest, Andy's sense of humor was a lot broader than mine, so that could have been it. Coming up the second row of the Pickle Days Carnival— and the whole shebang was still small enough to fit on just one block, the two of us had to stop and weave our way around a line, waiting for a ride. It was made up of mostly pre-teens and junior high school kids, and my eyes followed the line to a frightening sight. It was a tilt-a-whirl-type contraption, with five spinning arms, each holding a spinning bank of seats that in turn spun. Its name was the Dizzy Borden. "'Jimmy?' Andy said, and from the tone of her voice, for a moment there, I thought she was going to suggest we try it. "'Yes?' I said. "'Why don't we try that out?' "'You've got to be kidding.' She wasn't kidding. "'But look at that line,' I said, as if it led into the horizon like a desert road. "'And look at the guy who's afraid to go on it,' she said. Everybody has a kind of ride they hate. My big sister hated the ones that drop suddenly. My mom hated the ones that go too high in the air. The Dizzy Borden was built specifically for me to hate. My stomach clenched up just looking at it. But a man has to have his pride. Looks like fun, I said, not sure if I sounded believable. As punctuation, I quickly joined the end of the line. Andy stepped up beside me. If you're sure, I added. Sure, I'm sure, she said with a smile. An evil smile? The ride operator was tall, thin, with a mane of brown hair and light traces of acne scars. As our turn came, I noticed he had eyes that were two different colors, one brown and one green. I seemed to remember a rock star having two different colored eyes. It was Sting, or David Bowie, or Stevie Nicks, one of those English guys. We sat down, very close together, the point of no return just about to pass. 
I considered asking her if she was sure again, but decided against it. The operator pulled the mechanism closed around us, and I heard it click. It didn't sound very sturdy, like a screen door on a tornado shelter. The point had passed. The right operator laughed at my situation. I suppose his type could smell my type. Strap your dick to your leg, kid, he said loudly. You're in for quite a ride. The compartment surged forward then slammed to a halt as the next group of compartments, or was cages the more appropriate term, was filled. Scared? Andy asked, giving my hand a squeeze. Nope, I said, putting up a quick, phony grin. I was just remembering what me and Baron used to call these things. My buddy Baron and I had coerced our mothers into bringing us to the Pickle Days Carnival every summer for as long as I could remember. In fact, if Baron's family hadn't dragged him to Yellowstone that week, I'd have been here with him instead of Andy, or with both of them. That would have been awkward. Well, she said, Baron and I had nicknamed these spinning, jolting things puke rides, in honor of an unfortunate incident one of us had in the middle of riding one of them. I told Andy this, and the ride lurched forward again to load up with more victims. I had seen cartoons. These things were put together in one hour by trained monkeys, with a single bolt holding the whole contraption together. I could feel the heat of her bare legs through my jeans next to me, and tried to concentrate on that. Which one of you puked? she asked, curious. Baron, I lied. She sighed. That sounds like Baron. Of course it sounded nothing like him. Baron had been a scrawny, unpopular sideline sitter for approximately five minutes before he'd sprouted half a foot in sixth grade and lost his braces in seventh. Now he was everything a boy'd want to be strong, tall, handsome, athletic, popular. But he was also my best friend, and anybody who wanted to stay popular and healthy would be wise to remember that. But enough about Baron. He's got his own story and it's way better than mine. The dizzy Borden shifted and began to slowly turn. I could hear Mr. Biggs' To Be With You bellowing out of cheap speakers nearby, and I could feel Andy's body begin to press next to mine as the ride picked up speed. At that moment, I wasn't jealous at all of Baron. He was stuck in a Volvo with his folks and two spoiled twin sisters, probably looking for moose among the stink of bubbling mud, Heck, he was probably jealous of me. Whoa! Someone in another compartment said, and their seats spun past us. Do you want to spin? Andy asked. The clean, cool smell of spearmint came to my nose. Perhaps that was make-out gum. I didn't, but the faster you went, the closer you got. Sure, I said, and we gripped the wheel in front of us, turning it methodically clockwise. We began to rotate, slowly at first, which wasn't that slow since our cage was already spinning and the whole ride was going in a short circle, then fast, then faster. The view from my seat was a blur of struts, tents, and people. The sounds coming to my ears were a gumbo of laughs, music, screams, gears turning, and whipping hot wind. Round and round, faster and faster, in our little cage. Andy's body was pressed up against mine like an orange peel. That sounds nice, and in my mind it still is, but it felt uncomfortable, almost painful. I thought I saw the sky whipping past, so I shut my eyes. That would mean something bad. Make it stop, I thought I heard. "'Wee!' a kid shouted. I kept my eyes closed. I could feel the cage around us shuddering, rattling, wanting to come apart. "'Please!' I heard a kid cry. "'Make it stop!' "'Don't be a baby!' came the response. I pitied that crying child. I knew how he felt. It was spinning within spinning within spinning, around and around and around, 
I had to get off. Suddenly, I was sure it was going to malfunction. Something would snap or bend, and the cages would separate from their struts, or they'd smash into one another, crushing the occupants and then crushing the cages. Those not instantly killed would suffer long, agonizing deaths amid the gears and twisted metal. Which group would I be in? No more, someone shouted. It hurts. That voice was familiar. It was me. There was pressure on my stomach and chest. An invisible weight pushed there hard. Harder. Faster. Still spinning. Someone was crying. I didn't think it was me, but I couldn't say for sure. My breathing was quick and shallow. I hated this ride. Why did I get on it? I had been stupid, and I was paying for it now. I wanted to get off. Had to. But surely it would all end soon. I could hold out, couldn't I? Andy was there, next to me, almost within me at this point. I would be strong for her. The ride lurched, as did my stomach. It shuddered again, and I heard the unoiled brake scream as the ride tried to stop. It jumped, rattled, and then caught, coming to a sudden halt. All around me, relieved and thrilled voices spoke and laughed and whooped. Our little compartment stopped spinning. Jimmy? Andy said beside me. Are you okay? I opened my eyes, the world still spinning in my head even if it had stopped out there. My hands were bloodless little fists on the railing. I looked over at Andy. She was concerned, maybe even scared for me. I was going to be sick. It was only seconds before the ride operator unlocked us from our little prison, thank the Lord. He grinned when he saw my condition, an ugly little grin. Well, girls, what did you think? I said nothing, just climbed out of my seat and moved past him, leaving Andy to fend for herself. I stumbled off and pushed my way through the crowd, looking for a restroom. In the distance, like a faraway mountain, were two portable toilets, both with lines of mostly children before them. To my immediate left was a garbage can. I ran toward it, my stomach overpowering me, and sent a volley of hot liquid into it. It wasn't enough. I vomited again, tears springing from my eyes and an indescribably vile taste springing from my throat. Nearby, a kid laughed. Then a female voice said something to him in Spanish. I hope she was saying, Don't laugh at him, son. Let us pray for him instead. But I guess I'll never know. I lifted my head and inhaled a fetid mix of mustard, nacho cheese, and beer. The trash can was crawling with summer ants. That caused a new fit of violent puking. When I managed to recover enough to look around, I could feel eyes on me. I turned, wiping my mouth. It was Andy. She had seen me vomiting, and regardless of Wayne's world, that couldn't be good. I stepped away from the trash can, my feet a little wobbly, I felt ashamed and a little mad at Andy for following me. I was about to tell her that I wasn't a weenie, that there was something wrong with that ride, but before it even reached my clenched throat, I squelched it. It sounded like a feeble excuse, and she obviously hadn't experienced anything on it other than entertaining motion. I looked her way, but didn't quite make eye contact. I wasn't sure how bad I looked in her eyes right then. At best, she'd ask me to take her home now. At worst, well, she might try to get another ride home. Either way, my life was over. Jimmy? Andy said, hesitantly. What? I responded, even more hesitantly. Here, she said, and put her hand to her mouth. She took out her gum and held it out to me. I hate throwing up, she said. I couldn't believe it. Still can't. It was her only piece, and she had been chewing it. For some reason, that seemed more intimate than anything anyone had ever done for me. I... 
I said, then took the gum and began to chew it, the cool spearmint beginning to overpower the warm bile. I stood there for a moment, and as though it had been a healing balm, my sickness, fear, and shame began to fade away. Andy came up beside me and led me away from the garbage can. She seemed unfazed by the whole incident, and at that moment I loved her more than I think I ever loved anyone. There was a great deal I wanted to say just then, but nothing was coming out. If I had been given a weekend and an empty notebook, I might have filled it up. As it stood, I just said, Thanks, and added a heartfelt sigh. She gave me back a smile, one so pure and genuine that it was burned forever in my mind as my Andy face. That's what friends are for, she said. Now, that wasn't an entirely uncommon phrase in those days. I'd probably used it myself. And I had heard that somehow creepy Dion Warwick song many times over the years. But for some reason, it struck me as unusual at that moment. The phrase was more thought out than a simple no problem or you're welcome. It was as if she had suddenly spoken in another language, Klaatu, Barada, Nikto. But I understood it. Maybe it was the magical air of the end of summer, or it could have been that otherworldly carnival atmosphere, but I suddenly saw the school year stretched out before me, like a vision. I'd almost failed geometry and have to study independently after school. Baron would hurt his leg. My sister Amy would get contacts to replace her detested glasses. Someone would get a new car, green, with a sunroof. And Andy? Andy and I would slowly drift apart. She'd still be my girlfriend, at least for a while, and we'd go to homecoming together. But the pictures we'd have taken would show two young people at the end of a relationship, two children who sharpened their teeth on one another before moving on to where they truly belonged. I saw Andy passing me and my friends in the corridor outside of study hall, releasing a second too late the hand of the new boy who held her heart, a tall boy with curly black hair and a nose like a Japanese drawing. I saw myself crying unabashedly as a child does, alone in my room on a frigid fall night. I held myself in my shivering arms, like a little boy lost in the woods. I saw snow falling and my Aunt Gretchen falling ill. I saw, like from a surveillance camera, my sisters and me standing by her hospital bed, pretending we didn't smell something ghastly about the room. I saw the end of the cold winter arrive, the snow melted, sweaters discarded, jets leaving long white trails in the perfect blue sky. The school year came to a close, and I saw yearbooks being passed around. They would be red with gray trim this year, and twenty minutes before the bell rang on the last day of school, I would track Andy down and make sure she'd sign my yearbook. As an afterthought, she'd hand me hers. I saw myself wishing for that empty notebook again, but instead only quoting the Beach Boys. I may not always love you, but long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. God only knows what I'd be without you. Something that might have seemed trite at the moment, but was actually profound. I saw myself smiling and taking back my yearbook from her, as if it were no big thing, then holding it tightly on the bus ride back home, willing myself not to open it until I got to my house. I saw myself in my room, a new poster on the wall, something called Army of Darkness, opening up the yearbook and reading her words. I could even see the handwriting, small and careful, in blue ink a shade darker than her eyes. Though you'll think it was when you threw up, she would write. It was before that. 
on the ride, the spinning one, not the zipper, when I realized it was going to end between us. I felt something, not in my heart or even my head, but somewhere else, somewhere more intimate. It told me things were going to change, even if I didn't want them to. And I didn't. I'm sorry if I hurt you, and I know I did, but I hope you can believe me when I say that I'll never forget the time we had together. We taught each other a lot more than I think either of us realize. You were, are, my first true love. Part of who I am today, and next year, and the year after that, I owe to you. I'll never forget you. Try to return the favor. Your friend. And. And suddenly, I was back. The smell of popcorn and beer and cotton candy and the end of summer floated on the air, and the smell of my own sickness lingered somewhere near, and the light shampooiness of Andy's hair, like two ends of an aural spectrum. My eyes cleared. She was looking at me, not concerned enough to make me think I'd been out of it for longer than a few seconds. "'Can you hear me, Major Tom?' she said brows raised. Yeah, I muttered. I was... Was? Was that weird? She looked back toward the garbage can. A little. No, I meant... I stopped. She didn't see it. Didn't share the vision. And I thought, maybe I hadn't either just a stressed-out brain still dizzy and erratic, the mental equivalent of a car backfiring. The phenomenon didn't repeat itself. Well, I said at last, making it a statement. Well, any more target practice in you? Huh? I said, trying to shake away my confusion. Oh, uh, no. No, I'm okay. Good, she said. She looked up and down the midway. She must not have seen what she was looking for, because she turned back to me. You want to get out of here? She asked. By her tone, I think she was ready to go, and wasn't just concerned about my nausea. Yeah, I said. I wondered if I'd come to the carnival again next year, or if this would be the last time. My vision, dream, hallucination hadn't shown me that far ahead, but I wouldn't be surprised if the draw of the carnival atmosphere disappeared over the next twelve months. I walked with her, trying to hold myself high, higher than I felt at least. She held my hand some of the way, and though her little fingers felt the same intertwined with mine as they always did, I thought that wouldn't be so for much longer. Just before we got to the parking lot, I stopped. Andy, I said, turning to face her. Can I ask you something? She looked at me, not afraid exactly, but perhaps a little hesitant. Yep, things had changed. Yes. Things had changed, but not everything. Not yet. That guy with the tattoo on his belly, at the zipper, what did it say? She seemed surprised, but pleasantly so. His tattoo said, You are what you eat. I winced. That was terrible. But it was funny, too. Thanks, I said. And we laughed. The end. For Kate. Okay, so that story is called Round and Round, and I think I will include the Cars song, I'm Not the One, 
as the intro music and as the music for, well, I don't know. I'm Not The One is the song that I named this story after, not realizing that that song was not called Round and Round. I'm Not The One goes, going round and round. Going round and round, never looking down. I thought that that was the name of the song. Turns out I was wrong. There is a song from that era called Round and Round, and it was Rat that sang that. And I, I remembered Big Anklevich making fun of me for naming a story based on the Rat song. But the notes that I uncovered when I recorded the story said that it was another friend of ours named Ian, and so, sorry, Big. Uh, but, you know, the, 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 the song that really goes with this story is God Only Knows by the Beach Boys, and Gino Moretto the other day posted, he did a Facebook post where he included a link to the Beach Boys doing God Only Knows as one of his favorite songs. And that really sparked in me the desire to record this story. If only it was just to put in a, an audio collection. Uh, that is such a good song. This story, I really, really, really worked this story over and over again. Nowadays, I tend to write a story uh, and then either type it up or record it aloud, and then that's it. It's done. I put it out there. Part of that was uh, Dean Wesley Smith's advice to writers. He said, you know, as a writer, I understand this desire for your story to be perfect, but it's not ever going to be perfect. Just fix the typos, but don't pour over every single line and change this and change that, because eventually it will cease to be the story that you wanted to write and it becomes something else. And the time that it takes you to change this word here and find a, a better sentence there and fix this and alter this, you could write a new story. You could write a second story, a third story, or a fourth story. Don't just keep going over it and over and over again. You will learn more as a writer by writing a second story than by trying to make the first story perfect. And I don't know if he's right or not, uh, except for I, I know that he writes a lot of stories and there's definitely a, there's something to be said for his idea of you will learn more by writing another story. And so I don't regret all the time that I spent on this story revising it and changing things here and doing an audio version in probably 2004, 2005, uh, in which I changed other things. And then this one, you know, this version. And I just, I really wanted the story to be as good as it could be. And that made the story change quite a bit. Now, originally, Jimmy goes on the, this ride with Andy. And while uh, it's spinning round and round and round and round, he has this supernatural experience, surreal experience, where he's able to read the minds of other people on the ride. And one of those minds that he reads is Andy's, and he realizes that she is going to break up with him. That's really why he throws up at the end of that ride, of riding on the Dizzy Borden. And I decided I didn't want that to happen. I cut out all of the mind reading stuff on the ride and I just had it spinning faster and faster and he became physically sick, not so much emotionally sick. And then he threw up. And then I invented that bit about the having the vision of the future um, 
I added that in the second draft where we lost the mind reading. But we got this new vision of him with the yearbook and what was going to happen in the new year. And I may not always love you, but sure as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. God only knows what I'd do without you. That, 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 those may be the greatest lines in music history right there. Wow. And I still have the version with the mind reading and all that. Big Anklovich mentioned recently on a Steep episode that I was the only writer that he knew that would have deleted scenes in my stories. But it was the only way that I could stomach changing these things, killing my darlings, you know? And so that's how I did it. So the story still has this supernatural element to it with the, the yearbook and the, you know, the, the future. But even that may be too much. I, I didn't want it to be supernatural. I wanted it to just be sad, a slice of life of nostalgia. And Andy is based on a girl that I knew that I went to high school with who was so cool and so loving and affectionate and decent and I couldn't help but fall in love with her and of course it ruined our friendship and in the summer of 1992 she and I went on the zipper together at the carnival and she actually said I imagine this is what sex feels like and also I threw up in a garbage can and she gave me the gum out of her mouth so that I wouldn't have the taste of puke in mine. And that was, just like in the story, the most intimate thing that anybody had ever shared with me. I just couldn't believe how cool that was. And the story is dedicated to her. And I had a, another friend who was interested in her. And the three of us actually went to that carnival together. And I was always afraid that if the two of them hooked up, that it would ruin my friendship with both of them. And I'm absolutely sure that if she and I had hooked up, that it would have ruined my friendship with the third guy. But as it stands, neither of us did. And so I guess that's the best possible way this could have worked out. With autobiographical tales, you run the risk of putting too much of yourself into a story and people saying, well, this is obviously this and this is, so this is, did this really happen? And this is one of the most autobiographical stories I've written, but still a lot of the elements are fictional and I don't know if that's the best way to go. But I've found that putting little details from my own life in my stories make them richer. And because I'm not able to keep my stories in my head uh, forever, when I read them again later, I will be surprised at little elements where I go, oh, wow, that actually happened to me. That little bit that I wrote about there, huh? But, you know, as I've said before, you also run the risk of people saying, well, that's not how it happened. Or saying, you know, how am I supposed to interpret this? And the, the truth is you can't tie yourself down exactly to what actually happened because that limits your storytelling possibilities. And a lot of times lately we've been getting these musician biopics you know, whether it's the uh, Straight Outta Comptons or Walk the Lines or Bohemian Rhapsodies or Rocket Man. But you can't have those be entirely factual because it would be boring and too long. But I do really like throwing in a true element here and there. I guess for flavor. Or uh, because it's it makes it personally... Me, it makes it a story that only I could write because it's taking elements that I have experienced. Or, or in lots of cases, you know, things that my friends have experienced. 
But it's also dangerous to say, you know, this character is based on this person, you know, or this just flat out say this character is this person. Because again, they have to live and breathe and be, be malleable and sometimes the characters will surprise you and that's always good but yeah you can't be tied down to a real person because it, it just ruins drama i remember there was a a show that aaron sorkin produced and the main female character on the show was based on a woman that he dated who was a celebrity and that news got out and everybody looked at that under a new microscope everything that that character said went into the real woman's mouth and you know that's dangerous because you know suddenly you're treating this character with kid gloves the character can't just live and a good character does. A good character surprises you. A good character takes a left where you thought they were going to take a right. And so, yeah, it's best just not to say this character is so-and-so. I'm sorry. I feel like I don't know what I'm saying. I feel like I'm just talking in circles. I feel like I'm going round and round. This is a short episode. Let's just end it right here and I'll leave it with you. And I, I hope that you enjoy it, that you like this story. There's a sadness to the story that I really like. And uh, if you dug it, then, then, then we can do another one. Anyway, I appreciate you listening. And uh, that's it. I'm just going to let you go. Take care. Hello. This is fake Sean Connery. Rish is over at his rarely functioning computer, toiling on the next episode. Look at him. So sad. So deluded to think that what he does matters. That anyone cares. I can hear you. I'd almost feel sorry for him. If I weren't a figment of his fevered imagination. Will you do the license already? Yes, yes. The show you have just listened to is produced under what's known as a Creative Commons 3.0 license, in which you are free to download and share the files as you like, but you cannot change them, take credit for them, or attempt to sell them. I wouldn't take credit for them either. Big Sean, if you're not going to help... Ah, I've hurt his feelings. Look, the lad tries so hard... I see him literally working on podcasts every single day of the week. And for what? To be insulted by a bald, geriatric ex-celebrity? Fair enough. So listen, if you appreciate any of what that silly sod does, I advise you to head on over to Patreon and support him. You can give him a dollar an episode, can't you? Can't you spare one bloody dollar, you selfish pig-headed ingrate? The boy works his wee fingers to the bone. I'm just saying, the boy works hard for the money. So hard for you, honey. Couldn't you toss a pound or two his way to keep the ennui from overtaking him? It's already got me. If any of what he does has ever made you laugh or feel better about yourself, and it most certainly does me, Please support the lad. Is that better? Yeah, I guess. Thank you. I remember back then when everything was true, we... I remember way back then when everything was true and we would have such a very good time, such a fine time, such a happy time. I remember way back then when everything was true and we would have such a very good time, such a fine time, such a happy time. And I remember how we'd play, simply waste the day away, then we'd say nothing would come to between us, to dream us. Let's see, let's try it one more time, Fiction. 
Are you listening to me, child? Leave the pendant on. Are you listening to me, child? Yes, I'm listening, the girl all but snapped. <coughs> See if he'll follow if I... Other direction, Holcomb said quietly. Laura fixed it and read the words again. Wow, I almost fell right asleep there. How much do we have left? 200 words. Go ahead. Laura fixed it and read the words again. The bank owned that house now, and couldn't seem to sell it. But it had two large spruce trees at the too far. But it had... But it had a pair of large spruce trees at the... But it had a pair of large spruce trees at the two far ends of the front yard. But it had a pair of large spruce trees at the two far ends of the front yard. God damn it. But it had a pair of large spruce trees at the two far ends of the front yard. And the leaves did their best to hide the presence of the person the witch had called the Bone Man. But it had a pair of large spruce trees at the two far ends of the front yard. But it had a pair of large spruce trees at the two far ends of the front yard. And the leaves did their best to hide the presence of the man the witch had called. Uh. That's for you, Jimmy. <laughs>